Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. We do two hour long podcasts now, so we appreciate you for taking some time and sharing it here with us. If this is the first time you are tuning in, be sure to check out all of our content that we put out there on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005. I took the time to manually import every single old write-up of his at Focus Compounding. See, you want to go back to read his first Right up, if you're watching on the screen right now, you click that December 2005, and there it is, December 23rd, 2005, the day before Christmas Eve, Jeff wrote about American Eagle. Is American Eagle even public anymore? Probably not. I believe American Eagle is. The it, the uh, Tommy Hilfiger is not, which it mentions a little in a different post there. Uh, and those, a lot of those newspaper stocks obviously aren't, but American Eagle I think still is, right? Yeah, let's see. I don't let's see. American Eagle stock. Oops. Not stock. Wants Google wants to know my location. (laughs) Stock. Okay. That's why I I don't use Google for my daily browsing. I just use Google for the (laughs) podcast because we record over the air. Okay, American Eagle Outfitters. Yep, you are right. They are public. One or about a two billion dollar company. They are down sixty percent year to date, uh, which uh is kind of interesting. What did you say about American Eagle. Generally, I don't like investing in retailers because it is nearly impossible to find one with a durable competitive advantage. Uh, And you could read the rest of that uh, for free at focuscompounding.com. Hard to believe that they're actually still public. Look at this. Boom and bust cycle. Well, they've done better than some of the other ones that I would have... I mean, I didn't necessarily write about at the time, but back then, you know, uh, you obviously had Abercrombie, um, where at the time Abercrombie was actually a big part of it, not Hollister. And, um, you had PacSun, you had, I mean, they're, they're boom and bust, but they might even be less boom and bust than some of the other ones in that category. So to get access to that, go to focuscompounding.com. If you're interested in learning more about our investment services, you can reach out to me at Andrew at focuscompounding.com. You could go to that invest with us tab on our website, get access to our pitch deck and everything that we do in, in regards to investing capital for individuals. And of course, if you're listening on the podcast app or YouTube for the first time, hit the subscribe button and check out all of our other content. We are coming up on five years. We are not that far away from five years of producing the podcast, which is crazy. I don't know if I've mm-hmm. done five years of consistency like with anything in my life. <laughs> five years of... <laughs> podcasts um pretty crazy so huge backlog there definitely check out all that information uh compliance sometimes tells me to remind everybody uh that we are registered with the state of texas so check the disclaimers on our website and in the show notes Uh, if you're interested in our hedge fund you need to be a qualified investor our investment minimum is two million no management fee and we take 15 percent of the profits with a high watermark uh, for everybody else that can't meet those standards or qualification, you could uh, 
invest in our managed accounts, which are custodied at Interactive Brokers. The investment minimum is 250000 the 2.5% management fee, 0% incentive fee, no high watermark, and daily liquidity. It is your account. It's held in your name. We are just the managers on the account. So uh, to start that conversation, reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com. So today is November 2nd, and the big news that came out today, I don't even know if it would be considered big news because I think most people uh, were expecting it, is that the Fed raised interest rates yet again by 75 basis points. The market finished the day down about 2.5%. We are down around 21% year to date. It's been volatile near this I guess you could call it range. We've been you know, up, down, but kind of trading down 25 to down 20 or down 19 for the past couple of months. 10-year yield, 4.05%. Uh, but the Fed raised interest rates uh, 75 basis points, bringing the Fed funds rate to a new range of 375 to 4%. Uh, Powell now saying that the path to a soft landing has narrowed. Surprising to nobody. Uh, terminal Fed fund rate projection, it used to be about 4.6% before turning down. Uh, Powell actually said in the press conference that it will have to go higher. He doesn't know how much higher. Uh, Nick, I'm going to butcher his name. Uh, Nick Termios, I don't even know. Nick, Tamaros? the guy from, yeah, from, oh, so I didn't butcher. There we go. From the Wall Street Journal that wrote the trillion dollar triage. They call him Nicky Leaks, which is, I think, pretty funny. Oh. He suggested that the Federal Reserve could see a terminal Fed funds rate at five and a quarter to five point five zero in a more restrictive path going forward. Um, Powell acknowledged that rent overall is trending up. He said it's too premature to stop and think about like a pause. Uh, they still have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, he hinted at slowing the pace of hikes, but you know that they're going to continue. You know how fast that will be is sort of the question mark that he uh, talked about, uh, but that they are going to continue to raise, you know, either December or the following meeting after December, they may start doing 50 basis point rises. Um, But, you know, I would say it was a hawkish meeting and the market certainly uh, believed that as well as markets sold off. So sort of been the theme all year long, Jeff, continue to raise interest rates, um, inflation is, you know, not really coming down a lot. It seems like it's a tough environment ahead for stocks. What are your thoughts on it, Jeff? Um, yeah, I guess it, it seemed like it was as predicted, right? Uh, I don't know exactly what the reaction was. If it was that it was, um, what was expected or a little more hawkish. I'm not sure how it'd be that much more hawkish, um, I don't think it really makes much of a difference from what people were expecting. I mean, I think this Mm -hmm. was not a surprising one. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, do you ever think about, so markets are usually like what? I mean, they're always in the future. And as Mm -hmm. soon as the news comes out, you're basically too late, quote unquote. So is the market pricing in all of this bad news where, where we currently Stand, you know, down 20 to 21% or whatever it is. 
is all of that news basically priced in. I think back to 2020 when we first launched the fund mm. and you knew just more horrible news was going to continue to come out, but the right. market was looking for a reason to bottom. And it seemed like, you know, more and more horrible news was coming out, but, you know, markets started to take off because the market is, you know, very forward looking. All the economic data is very backwards looking. So when you think about where we currently are, do you think most of the bad news is starting to get priced in? Or do you think we still aren't at that level yet? I know earlier in the year we had spoken about if you really want to slow inflation, you need to bring the Fed funds, you know, 8% above, yeah. uh, you know, when we were at currently at zero. I think there's never been a time in history where inflation has come down without Fed funds rate being above uh, that inflation rate. But are we at the bottom, the point now where you should really start to think about putting risk on and getting along? There's going to be more bad news that comes out. I think everybody is expecting that bad news. Like you had said, today wasn't really surprising to anybody. What are you kind of thinking about? Um, I don't know if that is... Um, let's see. I, I don't know that that's why markets go up is because they're pricing ahead. Uh, and they're actually able to predict it ahead of time. Or if, like we said in 2020, uh, it was financial conditions loosening. So the Fed action there. Um, mm -hmm. I've tried to look at some things with that that people have asked about in normalized P ratio stuff. Uh, and it's, I, I'm not sure that the, I, I mean, not only am I not sure, I don't think that the market in any way is able to anticipate future earnings other than uh, what you'd be able to predict through just a trend. So I don't think that the market does correctly predict future earnings in any sense. Um, it does seem to react really strongly to short-term uh, interest rates. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Uh, the Trying to predict it is also difficult because the Fed doesn't know what they're going to do. So the reason the Fed doesn't know what they're going to do is because they don't know. I mean, they had a press conference, so th this isn't, um, this is just, you know, my comments based on sort of an interpretation of what was said in the press conference. But basically, there's no evidence that inflation is coming down. It hasn't come down the way that Powell would want it to. And I should say Powell because also the market may be reacting to expectations that other members of the Fed might have. Uh, different opinions than Powell at some point, right? So that could be part mm -hmm. of it too. Um, so the market could be anticipating eventually pushback from other members of the Fed as you get to higher rates at some point and expectations for uh, recession. Uh, I don't know if that will... I mean, you said that inflation hasn't come down without you know, a real... Fed funds rate above zero, basically, that you'd have to take the rate above inflation. Uh, it also really hasn't come down without a recession. I mean, they're just, you know, that's it's not a real history of that. Um, it, The expectations of experts might be correct, but they are uh, unprecedented historically. So they're, the, the market and, um, you know, strategists at different investment banks and stuff all expect a uh, future in terms of what happens with inflation 
and that is uh, that that would mean that inflation comes down in a way that has never happened before. Um, so I I don't know if that will happen. It might. Uh, it's just something that is it, it's worthwhile to think about what experts expect, and they have reasons for expecting that. But they've also been wrong for this entire period. And the Fed, and they said, you know, Powell said that in the press conference, uh, basically that, you know, we've always adjusted upwards because we've always thought it would come down faster than it did with, you know, supply chain things and, and, and some of that they talked about also, but that also inflation went from goods to services. And so the expectations have gotten worse, basically, each meeting, if you look at, you know, what they've projected out. Um, so, and that's universal, like any projections that you have, not just from the Fed, but anyone else, they all have been wrong if you were to look at what they were um, since COVID. So that doesn't mean they'll be wrong again. <laughs> it just means that if you're saying you're basing on, well, here's where we expect inflation to be next year. Well, last year expected it to come down in a way that didn't come down. And and um, there's basically been a year and a half that the expectations have been wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I should give the disclaimer that you're not the one that's going to be like, okay, you know, we're at a bottom, go buy 20 PE stocks or 30 PE stocks because, you know, now they're going to slow their pace of interest rate increases and it's time to be like full risk on. We're not those type of investors. I just think it's fun to hear your thoughts on it and uh, talk about it on the podcast because I think the audience finds it interesting, but it's not like you're exactly changing your um, investing framework, right? you still think about investing how you always think about investing. Now I do want to ask though, do you think about in terms of your opportunity cost, where rates are versus, you know, where Mm -hmm. you, um, you know, when you underwrite companies, does rates or the risk-free rate, does that affect how you think about your own opportunity cost at all when you are looking at a bunch of different businesses? Yeah, but the biggest factor is the price of stocks because that's the biggest issue in that. It moves a lot more. Uh, it's a lot more important usually than the interest rates. Um, even interest rates going from zero to four or whatever um, is, is, while huge, that kind of move does happen, a 4% difference in the expected return in stocks more often. So this is one rare case where actually the move in the short-term um rate is so big that it is a factor that's as big as like changes in the stocks, um, prices like a, like a Schiller P that kind of thing. Um, so that, I mean, look, some things in the economy have changed. Like, you know, now mortgage rates, let's say, so for instance, like a 30 year mortgage, um, could be close to being like what you'd expect in stocks in returns in stocks. Um, obviously mm-hmm. a year or two ago, you'd expect returns in stocks to be double or something with the mortgage rates, the big mortgage rates went up a lot. Stocks got a little bit better expected returns in them because, you know, we just showed the S&P down 20% or whatever. But obviously, you know, in terms of the uh, the returns that you could get in something like mortgage or something, it's basically doubled, you know? Um, we can't compare that exactly because mortgages are a little different than like a bond. But if the same thing happened, if those were bonds instead, um, you know, th- there's some things that are competitive with that, sure. Yeah. Um, Somebody actually recently brought me uh, a one-off deal. On uh, it was a real estate thing. I don't even invest in real estate, but I just saw <laughs> yeah. it and I thought it was interesting. And the cap rate on it was like eight percent. And mm-hmm. you know, when interest rates are 
whatever they are, like 7% or mortgage rates, I moreover mortgage rates are 7% and the cap rate is 8%. I was thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, I mean, so is the whole play here or the way that anyone would be investing right now, if you are going to use debt is just on appreciation of that real estate. I mean, when you think about it, you could just really see how things start to slow down when rates get to where they currently are. Right. Or there's an expectation that you will have a certain rate for like five years or something, and then you have a different rate. Um, you can see that in... So the, you refinance on the way down. Right. Yeah. You can see that on the yield curve um, because you can see now that uh, basically before the meeting, I don't know what it is now, I talked about three-month, 10-year, um, which the Fed, use, Powell uses a slightly different measure, but it's pretty, you know, pretty similar thing, which I think is the best predictor of, you know... Um, conditions in terms of uh whether the whether you have a yield curve inversion um that would predict a recession and it's basically about it an inversion very close you know um so that's so some people are going to take that expectation that you're not going to be stuck with these rates uh, indefinitely right so even though you have mm -hmm. to borrow at four percent now i mean the government you know borrows at whatever percent now and then you add some spread over that that you know in a few years you won't have to constantly be financing something at that rate uh you know i guess where i would be more cautious than most people is so far i mean look so far we're exactly on track with 69 to 81 I mean, everything is going exactly the mm -hmm. way it went from 1969 to 1981. So that doesn't mean it won't be totally different this time. But just to understand that, like, this is where in terms of what is happening, it's not really some completely different thing than that. And what happened then and what happens a lot. I mean, we don't have a lot of cases of this around the world, but what's fairly common in the rare cases where you have bad inflation happen um, is that you do raise rates you do try to bring inflation the central bank does try to bring inflation down but it cuts too fast uh and in subsequent uh recessions uh you continue in in the recession you have inflation come down but that each recession ends up having somewhat higher on average inflation than you did at, at the bottom of each recession than you did previous to that so you have a series of higher lows in terms of inflation uh, during periods of recession. And so I think in these press conferences and in a lot of the commentary about this and everything, it's sort of like, oh, we're trying to avoid a recession like we had in the early 90s or something, a pretty garden variety post-World War II recession. Uh, that's what they talk about it with this um, soft landing, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That one, if, if that happened and inflation went up to 2% and stayed there, I think... Uh, that uh, this Federal Reserve would be considered to have done an amazing job and they would consider in histories of it that it was a great example of a rare case in which uh, inflation was dealt with really well. Um, that's not the bad outcome to avoid, probably. The scariest thing, the thing you most want to avoid is not uh, avoiding a single recession, but the possibility that you will have uh, a high level of inflation, uh, a higher level of inflation at bad times for the economy that's that you know that's too high and that continues for a long period of time, which would require several recessions over time to bring down 
you know, which is when they talk about the stop and go and all of that kind of stuff. And the reason for that, that's not like they didn't understand what they were doing in those years. A, a lot of it was, I mean, it could be a variety of different things, but some of it's sort of short term, prioritizing the short term over the long term. So not willing to take the, the pain. Uh, some of it is giving into political pressure for different reasons. You're seeing that now. People are coming out and say Elizabeth Warren. I think Bernie Sanders signed off on sure. it. Mm-hmm. Um, hinting at, you know, the pace of these uh, interest rate increases are going to harm the everyday American. I mean, they're basically trying to break something in the economy, right? It, uh, the unemployment right. rate's still at record low levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that that's, you know, they had reasons for it. I, I've said that before reading these books about the Fed and everything. What's always funny about it is the Fed has all these models and everything and explains, you know, what they should do. But when looking back and analyzing what happened in the past with the Fed or other central banks, they always kind of explain why uh, they didn't do what they needed to. But when looking forward, their uh, their suggestions about what the right policy should be and how they'll be able to do things really assumes that they will um, make the right policy decision. They don't really incorporate it into a model. Uh, it, it's sort of like... As if you said, well, I'm going to lose weight by dieting and I'm not going to incorporate the possibility that I won't stick to the diet that I'm planning out exactly, right? They don't mm-hmm. incorporate into it the extent to which they may not. Um, uh, they The extent to which they may not um, follow through with sort of what the best um, policy would be because of issues like, you know, whether it's political pressure or whatever. And of course these things are subjective. So in the time, you know, if you're being pushed a little bit with the political pressure and if you're thinking, well, I could put this off a little bit, um, and it's a judgment call, then, you know, it, it seems reasonable at the time to do what you did. You know, with hindsight, we can say, oh, well, they didn't do enough in each of these cases, but in some of them, they did a lot. Um, so I think that that is more of the issue to worry about or to think about is the long term, what we're dealing with, how long rates are high, um, and what things look like. I would think more, what do things look like at the bottom of the next recession rather than, are we going to have a recession? Uh, it's more, are we going to have a recession? And if we do, are, is inflation going to be a little bit below 2% or something like you would want it to be? Uh, you don't want to have a recession to have um, inflation at the bottom of the recession be, you know, 3% or more or something. That would obviously be alarming because then what do you do? Uh, you want to get out of the recession. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. you cut rates inst- when you're over your target. How much do you cut rates? How long do you keep them down there if you're willing to run over your target at that period, you know? I mean, if that's really an average that you're shooting for, you shouldn't be running ever in a recessionary period at over 2%. I mean, during recession, it should be lower than that. So, you know, it's a trade-off. And that is what we'll have to see. I think some of the expectations like, oh, so there'll be a recession, so they'll cut rates. There'll certainly be a strong temptation to cut rates. But if you have a recession at the same time you have high inflation, there's going to be some serious debate about what to do for how long and and um, all of that. And that's something we haven't seen for a very long time, actually. Um, that's a big difference between what, uh, how long, you know, with how long the cycle is and everything. It's been very clear to people looking at the Fed what they were going to do 
in terms of the direction and everything of how long uh, it would go one way or the other for a very long time, certainly since the financial crisis, but even really through most of the, um, really for over 20 years, I mean, for this entire, you know, this millennium, um, it has been in a way that it wasn't before. The cycles used to be a lot shorter. Um, so they went from, you know, raising to cutting and back and forth a lot faster in the past. So it wasn't as clear for how long that would last. Um, and now we're used to it where we expect that um, if there's a signs of a recession that they would, you know, cut rates. Is that where you think the bottom will be at the end of the next recession? I mean, do you think that we're going to have a recession and interest rates are going to be high? Inflation will also be high and we're going to be, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place trying to decide, well, do we stimulate the recession to get out of it? Or do we continue with this until inflation comes down? What do you think will happen? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think right now we're really far from the idea that inflation could come down, but we're really far from the idea that the Fed would be causing a large decrease in inflation. Historically, if you look mm -hmm. at like what you have to do to the unemployment rate to reduce inflation, um, it could come down, and they thought it would come down for other reasons before. I, I don't know if we can predict if inflation will go up or down or whatever as a measure, but in terms of how what it would take for the Fed's policy to cause that, um, that's pretty difficult. We're at record low unemployment. We have way more job openings um, than people looking for jobs. So presumably it would take a really big collapse in that before you even get really meaningful unemployment and you need meaningful unemployment to drive meaningful decrease in inflation um, from the Fed doing it. it. Again, it could happen for other reasons that inflation could come down, um, just like it could go up for reasons that have nothing to do with the Fed's policy. You know, we talk about like an energy shock or something. It's not, that's not the Fed doing that in it, but it gets captured in, in price indexes and things like that. So it can go up and down for reasons that aren't the Fed, but for the Fed doing it, you know, and they are clear about that in the press conferences and stuff, they work through the labor market. And uh, they're really far from being able to have a big impact on like the unemployment rate. If you were doing a post-mortem, do you think you would say we're in the situation we are in now because of the policy from 2020 to the present through COVID? Or is it more so policy from 08 through COVID? Yeah, I think there's two issues personally. Um, but this is a take that's different from other people's view. I believe that interest rates were too low in 2017. Uh, from 2017 on, I think there's strong um, indications that the Fed previously, the Greenspan Fed and, and Feds of the past, any Fed from before the financial crisis, would have preemptively started raising rates to get to a level that they thought was more neutral and to have gone there and uh, done that anyway. Uh, for instance, we weren't at totally normal levels in terms of the labor market and everything before COVID hit. They made the decision to run the market, uh, to run the um, economy hotter than normal, sort of. They did these Fed listens tours and they thought a lot about um, how much benefit there is to more marginal um, workers uh, who are often people who might be in places that have less opportunity, um, who might not be white, um, who might uh, have less employment opportunities just generally 
in a, the community, but also just in terms of education levels and all sorts of other things and would be uh, benefiting a lot from a particularly low unemployment rate. So if maybe your unemployment rate should be five or 6% or whatever, but it's three or 4%, it would disproportionately benefit people who, um, who would, in, in terms of, although that's only a couple percent difference in the overall workforce, it's who's benefiting from that. And I think that may have had a large impact on them. There was a lot of research on that and stuff, and they started to think about that. And mainly I think they thought about that because inflation had been so low and stable for so long that it seemed like, well, we could do this. Uh, whereas in the past, I think they wouldn't do that because they understood the risks. People had lived through the great inflation. So I think they did that for too long. Um, and this is true, like when I was talking about reading the books about the Fed and stuff, there's a lot talking about this, about why is the labor, is the labor market so tight and yet there's not inflation. And, you know, they basically said, we'll wait till we see a lot of inflation before we do anything. So I, I just think that it might've been, um, I think there may have been, uh, I don't think that we were in a completely neutral situation before COVID happened. Uh, I don't think that was the case before about 2017. I think it's only in the period from about 2017 till COVID that you say, well, this looks like the rate is too low, that you're doing something you shouldn't be doing here. Um, it's not just that you have a particularly low rate. Before you had a particularly low rate, but the economy was really weak. Now you seem to just have a particularly low rate for no reason. Um, it, there's not inflation, so you don't have to do something about it, but why are you keeping the rate this low? Um, because unemployment was already very low, and you can see this in all the data about labor force stuff and, and, and just other things generally. I just don't think you started from a completely neutral position there. Uh, and then you had stimulus, and I think that, that it's the stimulus that's the issue. So, um, And again, that may be because increasing a lot of this um, monetary base stuff that I talk about, right? So there's all these people talking about the money supply and all that. That's, that's very tricky because that's very different than putting money into people's bank accounts or, you know, if you took money in cash and handed it out to people, put it out on their lawns and they find it and stuff, it's going to have a very different uh, immediate reaction to the economy than if you're putting money in, in, in um, that's sitting idle in banks that are just putting it back at the Fed and stuff like that. You can't predict how that will work. So, um, I think the stimulus thing was, uh, an experiment, which is fine, but you know, we, we found out what it does. It, it does something that's very different than uh, monetary policy. So, and I think the lingering effect of that is big right now. Um, and I think they know that I think in the press conference and stuff, you can hear that Powell knows that, that like, why isn't this working as well? Well, because people aren't actually, they're feeling stressed on a flow basis, right? But they still have excess deposits. Um, they still have some savings. They still have a better balance sheet. If they didn't have that, maybe things wouldn't be taking this long. So uh, on the one hand, they feel very stressed um, because their expenses are rising relative to their incomes pretty strongly and stuff. But on the other hand, they're not in a desperate situation balance sheet-wise. What happened is you sent people money at the same time they couldn't spend the money. So, I mean, there have been weird things like this have happened before and COVID was very strange that way. And it's, you know, it's hard to predict, but th that, um, 
so you know it's preemptive doing that because of what, what the fear was of what would happen with covid um and it was a decision to do that and that's you know i think it's understandable that it was done and uh this is uh you shouldn't expect people to be able to do the right the, the thing that turns out right all the time so it was a decision that was made it turned out with what happened in the future that probably it wasn't necessary um and would have been better if it wasn't done but it, how could you have imagined that at the time that that was right um and all these things you know correct over time that i think there was in the future there wouldn't be this attitude about it like if this happened again you know imagine if something happened and a lot of stimulus was put out and stuff they'd start ra- raising rates faster they wouldn't have waited the very long period after they saw inflation till now till i mean till they started the rate increases uh and if this had happened in you know the 80s or something this had happened in 1990 instead of 2020, you know, COVID had happened, uh, they would have started increasing rates a lot faster because people had just lived through a really bad inflation period. But now no one lived mm-hmm. through a bad inflation period, so no one worries about it, you know? That's interesting. Much of 2022 has been about, you know, prices coming down in a lot of companies. And the question has been, you know, when you look at a lot of these businesses, you're like, oh, it's trading at a 10 times PE now or 12 times PE or 13 times PE for these very dominant businesses. Uh, the question mark has been, okay, yeah, prices come down, but what's that E going to do going forward? And last week, um, Amazon, Meta, Facebook, and Snapchat reported Apple as well. Apple, you know, did quite well. Um, but you know, Amazon pulled back, Snapchat pulled back, uh, meta platforms pulled back, uh, Snapchat actually fell on earnings like 28% citing, um, you know, that they are too reliant on, uh, certain advertising models, uh, meta platforms also cited that they are going to have headwinds in revenue going forward. And I thought it was just interesting to bring this back up because we spent a lot of time talking about advertising on Mm -hmm. the podcast. And you had actually said, I think the word you used is people may be surprised with how incestuous a lot of these companies are with each other. Yeah. And uh, Snapchat, the CFO, he actually talked about it on the podcast and somebody tweeted this, actually this uh, uh, court quarter or whatever it is, the app, they actually tweeted it to us. They listened to the podcast, which is pretty cool um, because they have a great product. He was basically saying that Jeff was just saying this in our most recent podcast, uh, the CFO of Snapchat. He said, it's incredibly fast and easy for advertisers to turn digital performance advertising on and off as they Mm -hmm. seek to calibrate their investments and their own growth in their business. So here we are right going into a recession and a lot of these companies that rely on advertisers do you think they give too much respect to the business models where they think maybe they're a little bit more insulated when really at the end of the day it's like well they really just rely on advertising for their business model and if we go into a recession guess what is the first thing a lot of these companies are going to pull back is their advertising so I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that because you recently just spoke about this and I thought it was interesting timing. Right. So um, I think this is similar to what we're saying about with the Fed. I, totally understandably, what people react to a lot is what has happened recently, you know, what the trend is recently. 
And for a long time now, certainly since the financial crisis, um, anytime the economy's gotten worse or whatever, with the exception of that very brief blip when everything shut down for COVID for a second for these companies, like advertising just shut off, um, this has been the best performing, most consistent, most defensive, but also very fast growing um, part of the economy is this online, but especially online advertising. Um, I don't think it's based on people's beliefs in these um, uh, business models is really based on much more than that. You know, that that's where I would caution. Mm. And so that's why I talked about before, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago that I was, you know, I mean, we don't do like short-term predictions on a lot of these things, but basically what I was saying is, you know, if you were long ad agencies, traditional ad agencies and stuff and short these companies, I think, you know, I don't know about the prices and stuff, but basically you might have better results because I don't think that Interpublic and Omnicom and all those will see things drop quite as much as things like Meta and Snap. Um, because it's because they're more diversified. Not that it's great. I mean, look, you're going to a recession, but what you're seeing now in the market, of course, is that's that's totally incorporated into it, though. And at least in the case of things like Meta, they're reacting this time like, oh, the way that an ad agency reacts going into a recession. That's how they're reacting. These stocks, which is not the case, uh, you know, wouldn't have been the case a while ago. People would have said, oh no, they'll still grow through this. Now they're being treated a lot more like other, you know, ad businesses. So there's an understanding of that. Obviously, I think their earnings will will crater compared to things like ad agencies simply because they, it's going to take them a little time for them to slow their expense growth. You know, the old legacy things would never be growing their expenses. You know, I mean, some of these things were growing their headcount like 20%, not even the expenses, but the actual just number of people um, by really high numbers. Obviously, you know, legacy older things don't do that. And so they're mm-hmm. they're if they have similar revenue results, they're not going to have similar earnings results. Um, and when you do an apples to apples comparison on these, I think it's even worse than people think, because like if when I go through and some of them don't break out the data perfectly, but when I go through like Amazon and what it means and and by like market by U.S. versus other things, and, um, or you know any of these others. I think that this particularly these are really weak versus um, other advertising things, um, in terms of their results versus these other ones. Because if you if you kind of adjust for like what markets they're in and everything, because like when I said the ad agency ones, they're some of them are quite a bit bigger in places like Europe, and so when you do like organic growth in the United States versus organic growth as best you can figure it out for some of these companies in the United States. You know, it, it's it's tough. It's also won't be great for the ad agencies. You know, a recession, but they have more mm-hmm. you know brand advertising in there and everything. It's not all performance, whatever. And they're a lot more digital. Those ad agencies, and they're spending a lot more on that. They're a lot more similar now to these other companies too. But still, um, I, they're more diversified. These are not so diversified, and some of them are more extreme. Like Meta is maybe one of the. I mean, I'm sure Snap is even less, but but Meta of a big one is like less. Um, it's more obvious what's happening there, right? Because it was like very much things you could track and, you know, what, what happened with Apple and all that. Um, but uh, uh, very specific kinds of advertising, you know. What are your thoughts on the dual class share structure? So here you have Meta where their business is declining. 
Zuck is still plowing 20 billion or whatever it is into his metaverse platform. A lot of investors, probably because of the share price as well, are extremely against that investment. Do you think Buffett would ever invest in a company with a dual class share structure where minority shareholders or just shareholders in general have absolutely no say in anything? Absolutely. Yes, he would. Yeah. hundred percent. He'd give away his rights if he liked what the person was doing. I'd do the same thing. I have no problem mm-hmm. with dual class structure if I like what they're doing. If I trust them, it's better for me because it means that if I like what they're doing better than the other shareholders, then it protects me from the other shareholders having an influence on it. And then I get this you know, dictator running things and they're doing what I want them to do. If they're doing what you don't want them to do, it's really bad. And these, Which these, is what's going on at Meta. Right. But these new online things, some of them have these structures, which is a lot of media companies had this structure, you know, older ones from everything from newspaper things on. So it's not uncommon. Media things have often had this. Yeah. The Murdoch trust. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it can be good or bad. You know, why is he Zuckerberg doing what he's doing in the case of Meta? Uh, well, he could be taking a longer-term view of things, and he could be more realistic about some things than some of the shareholders, right? I mm-hmm. mean, honestly, he could be saying he may have a better understanding of the risks to the company in the core business that they have more than shareholders are, because all of his wealth is in it, all of his uh, entity, all of his identity, and everything is tied up in this company. So he has to make this company a success. Uh, shareholders, you know, they can buy in and they can sell out and it can be a part of their portfolio. And so they might care more. I want the results now. I want the earnings now and everything and not be thinking longer term about all those issues. Um, He was on Lex Friedman and he did say that nowadays a lot of his time is thinking 10 years into the future and really trying to think about the long term with Facebook or meta platforms. My perception and he said something that's a little bit close to this i don't remember the exact quote but it's something just in general i've got a feeling from listening to some of the not listening i actually read the things he said um is probably the apple thing scares them right um mm-hmm. because you don't control your destiny as much and finding something where you have more control of it is um desirable and I think that may play a bigger part of it than we think. Um, that's also a strategy that all of these tech companies seem to be very focused on is, is they have a good understanding usually of how big the advantages are from like really controlling something, all, all parts of it themselves um, versus things where they can be uh, harmed by other large companies in, in it. Um, and it's a little different than other industries that way. So... It almost seems like Metaverse could be their own version of Apple, of holding all the market power. So here they have the Metaverse, yeah. and then maybe other brands or companies want to plug into their system. I mean, then they're just basically like Apple in their own way. Mm-hmm. And this is a, you know, this is very typical thinking of the way that these large, uh, not, I shouldn't even say large, large or small, but these things that have these, let's win big in some area, um, tech companies focus on it's a lot of the 
the network effect stuff, but also like just the focusing on controlling something that is an ecosystem basically that we control and, um, and controlling all of the information. We've talked about that even like with the Kroger uh, Albertsons thing and all that, um, the importance of that. I think that it may have some importance in this more so than we realize sometimes the advantages that you have from controlling all parts of the information that you have on some stuff. And uh, I don't even understand it in the case of like Google, for instance, um, like, you know, you could look at it and say, oh, well, you know, how much does like Android really help you? How much is this and that um, thing that you do? But it may help them. Way, like, I don't understand enough of how much it helps them in terms of having certain information and controlling all the information inside the company instead of having it to be something that's available for anyone else in terms of the value that it has for advertising purposes. And Meta may have had a lot of uh, value of information that they had um, that made their advertising more effective. Um, and now it doesn't, you know. So that that can obviously scare companies if they have a, a uh, issue with that. I would say though, you know, and there's been some success with this. I mean, the other thing is, you know, Meta and um, uh, Google, you know, Alphabet um, did have success in, uh, and even a little bit Microsoft had some success in buying things uh, that, you know, could be competitive or something. Microsoft bought like LinkedIn and, and some things like that. Um, and, turning them into kind of working them in with other stuff that they had into a bit of a success. So, which is not historically something that's easy to do. I mean, so that's pretty impressive. in some of these, like, I mean, think about, you know, if, if Google hadn't bought YouTube, for instance, um, you know, they're Google's smart and lucky in some ways, because there's a couple of ways in which, you know, if all you had is the, um, original search business that you had a lot of search stuff has gone in other directions, video search, shopping, search stuff, um, things that can be done on a phone that's either Android or, or, or iPhone, um, that over time could be a lot more information that's that you wouldn't have expected that I never would have expected that there's all these different avenues that could be closed off to you. They could end up in kind of closed systems. Um, so it's interesting that they were able to do that. Um, Meta's been able to do that too. They, they've they bought some things and kind of incorporated copying other things, you know, like Microsoft has a history of doing too. Um, and s stayed pretty strong through doing that. So it's uh, it's interesting. There's not a lot of industries where there's a good history of doing that because the scale of these things is tremendous. So that's the problem with this. You know, when you say like, we're going to build this, this um, metaverse thing and stuff. I mean, the scale of the advertising business they have now for something to be consequential relative to that you know, I mean, it, you have to hit a home run to get to it, moving the needle. It's not like, you know, a venture capital thing. It's like the reverse of that. You need to have something that's, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than people expect just to be, uh, something that's a meaningful business to you when you're this size. Um, so I, I think these companies are interesting stocks. Some of them meta, you know, um, because they are so much cheaper. And so they're very interesting from that perspective. Um, but I still have the problem that I don't really understand enough about the business model and the competitive position and all of that for the future. Um, I still worry about that with most of these companies. How would you be thinking about their investment in metaverse if you were 
doing research on meta platforms, Facebook, or would you not? Like, would that not be the bulk of your research? Would the bulk of your attention be directed towards understanding the competitive landscape with TikTok and TikTok's future, um, you know, as they continue to take market share? What would you be thinking about? I'd estimate how, uh, so I'd assume that it's just a total loss that will be lost every year forever. Um, however much they're spending on, they'll spend every year forever, uh, and they'll never get a dollar back. Um, that's not because it's the most likely outcome, but I mean, that's, that's certainly what I would assume in looking at it to buy the stock. Uh, I also would just look in terms of margin of safety of how bad can things get in their core business. Um, and the stock still be justified as a purchase. So, um, obviously if the core business doesn't get worse and they continue to spend at the rate that they're spending now. As long as they slow down their growth that they've done in other things and everything, the stock could be fine. Um, the, obviously, the expectation is that things will get a lot worse in their core business. So, otherwise, the stock wouldn't be trading this low. It can't just be that they're spending a bunch of money on on metaverse stuff. I mean, we're looking Never at a quick a dull right there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's trading at like what two times sales, and this is a company that that showed it could have forty percent or something, uh, you know, operating margins, EBITDA margins, or whatever. Certainly, when I looked at this company ten years ago, or whatever, you know, I, I, whenever it went public, you know, I said like this is, you know, in best case scenario, this is like a TV station that covers the world, and if you look at the history of those if they're run badly, they can have a 20% EBITDA margin, but if they're run really well and stuff, they can have a 50% EBITDA margin. There's no reason why this business can't um, have that. And it's had a really good one while spending a ton of money on other stuff. So uh, it's an incredible business. Um, so mm -hmm. there's a lot that it could absorb. So, but that means that the stock price is obviously taking into account is assuming real deterioration. Um, and I, I just, that's the part that worries me. Uh, is the the people's habits. I'm just worried about how much people's habits change online and how quickly it could change and all of that. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, they haven't been as durable, people's habits, as I would have thought. You know, So that's kind of the concern, is that there, there's been a lot of stuff that's grown up pretty fast and gotten really big um, that is a little worrying because I wouldn't have expected so many more things to get that big after we already had um some of these services so such as like tiktok and then yeah. you know reels and shorts mm -hmm. yeah like like tiktok yeah um isn't it crazy to think i mean just because we've spent some time talking about the complete mismanagement of twitter it's crazy to think that twitter really had the first tiktok when they purchased Vine and then shut it down. Do you remember what Vine was? I do remember Vine. I, I remember a bunch of things. I mean, I we just showed I was on a blog in 2005. I started a podcast before most people were podcasting. I mean, I, I yeah. do know what some of these things are. Um, there's more That's the things. That's that surprises me always <laughs> about you, Jeff, is that you know all these things, even though you don't have social media or any of that. Yeah, so there's some things that got big and completely collapsed to nothing. Um, and it's important to keep that in mind that there are some things that are like Blackberry like in terms of how fast they grew, how big they got and how much that they collapsed down to nothing. It is very obvious now looking at if we talk about Vine or whatever. I mean, you can talk about things that people don't even I'm sure don't remember and stuff, you know, Tumblr. And, and But at the time that they existed, that didn't seem unreasonable. 
that didn't seem that weird. They, they got big, and you didn't know, how did we know that it was going to be this kind of thing that people are going to spend their time instead of something else? Uh, we, didn't, we didn't really know, and I don't know. There might be some you know, counterfactual example of the world uh, in which some of these things did get big and were a success and other ones weren't. Um, I, I think I, for some of these, I would have expected that their, their, that the user behavior would have been more predictable over a longer period of time. There wouldn't be as much of the novelty thing. I think the reason why I misunderstood that is age. I don't think I fully took into account how every time that there's a new generation of people, um, that generation will obviously discover something that is going to be different from the existing media things. And because it can spread so quickly with the existing media things on them, that basically the networks that exist now will carry the new service um, to spread it in places because you'll see a watermark or whatever. You'll just know about it and it'll just spread virally from that. That in fact, things can spread all around the world with each generation that comes up that way. And so if you look at it, you kind of think, yeah, well, this stuff's predictable overall. And it is. It's not like there's been this sudden change in the behaviors of um, uh, 55-year-olds on Facebook, but eventually it erodes and it does change after there's a tipping point where things that were discovered by uh, younger people and spread that way. And I think that was a huge factor with Snap, and I think that was a huge factor with um, TikTok in ways that I didn't under, uh, under, take into account properly. I, I didn't, you know, we talked a little bit about this, but like the importance of this idea of it's just necessary that a network is um, effective enough within a smaller group of people. So it's really like the, the liquidity of that, you know, as like a, if you think of it like a market among that small core group, and then it can spread out from there rather than it actually having to be very big across the whole world of the globe. It, something that's a few percent of everybody isn't that important, but something that's a huge part of people in a particular age group, a particular place, uh, you know, Facebook was you know, colleges and stuff originally and spread out from that is what's really key. And, uh, I think that once you have that, you can then spread pretty rapidly to other, uh, other things beyond that, uh, to the wider, uh, public pretty fast. Um, and I don't think I completely like understood enough of that. Um, and I would have overrated the odds for some of these companies. Uh, in terms of like their moat and all that stuff. But counter argument to this is that the financial results have held up really well because what's key to this is that it's not, these are advertising businesses. So it's not all about the user behavior. Uh, it's really important how that converts into the usefulness to an advertiser. And it's that part of it, just like with newspapers and all these other things we talked about for old media stuff. It's really, that's where the value is. And that has held up much better. And the um, reported results even to this day are much better than some of my fears about uh, people's changing habits. But, you know, I mean, we talked about like BlackBerry and stuff. Uh, you didn't get a lot of warning. People were obsessed with that. It was selling really well. It had a tremendous market share. And then in a year and a half, it was like people felt pretty hopeless they could ever turn this around and get um, back to being a viable um, service that you know that was had any sort of critical mass. Do you think that's what Buffett? I mean, we we know when Buffett says, "Oh, I don't understand technology," he's talking about he doesn't understand 
you know, customer behavior towards certain technological things and where that's going to be, you know, five, 10 years into the future. And so it's true with other tech things that I don't think people realize. I mean, right now, like what is, you can look it up on quick. I've asked, what is AMD's market cap? Let's, if you just give, uh, um, okay. Yeah. Okay, and what's Intel? Maybe like twenty billion more than that, or something. It's not a huge amount. Okay, ninety-six billion, more, but I don't think it's that much more. Um, okay, so like in my lifetime, hundred sixteen Intel consistently had an advantage over AMD. It seemed like an advantage that would be hard in terms of um, competitively, an advantage that would be hard for AMD to ever close. The idea that AMD, a company which has a history of basically being marginally profitable at best for i mean it's it's like comparing twitter to facebook or something in terms of the history of these two companies and now it is valued in the market at pretty similar levels i mean we could look at the history of the two i mean we only have intel going back you know 20 years or something but if you look we're talking about a history of something that it's it's as if literally you know we were talking about facebook and twitter and sudden, and you know, a few years from now, the market's valuing Twitter is at as high as Facebook. It would be that startling a result because you just say in every way they've had an advantage over that time. But there's also an, an understanding that whole time by Intel included that this is a tech thing that needs to have an advantage in every single generation. Um, when it loses it, there'll be some big problems. And if the market starts to expect that that has happened, that'll continue to happen. Um, then it'll give levels like this where it says it's worth one time's book, basically. But um, that's the sort of thing that can happen in tech. And, you know, with this kind of technology, meaning um, what we think of usually as high tech, stuff like that, but also the media things that we're talking about, because that's where Buffett's history is in the media things. And, you know, he was pretty perceptive in that. He stuck with it, but like he understood how bad it got for newspapers, how fast. He also was fast even when he owned Cap Cities and everything of saying even in like by the late eighties and stuff, late eighties, early nineties, Buffett is saying, you know, it's, these are good businesses, but they're not as good as they were 10 years ago. And that's early to be telling people that, that, you know, network TV and newspapers and all this stuff are good businesses, not great businesses anymore. A lot of the stock market and stuff was still valuing as great business for like the next 10 years. A lot of, you know, what I talk about on the podcast or tweet, at times, it's really reminders to myself, almost as if I'm thinking out loud. And it's a good example, I think, of how overconfident everybody, really I'm talking about myself, can be when it comes to like predicting the durableness of a business. I mean, really, you just don't know. I mean, you can't feel that confident about so many different businesses. <laughs> you know, that they're going to be around in some fashion, you know, 10, 15 years from now. That's probably why I like, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the regionalized businesses, you know, we talk about us lime, lime quarries. Mm -hmm. Uh, I talked to somebody recently that owns a sawmill and I was talking to him about uh -huh. how much <laughs> I was looking, I, I have some trees that need to get cut down. Please don't come for me, but I have trees that need to be cut down. And, you know, I was, uh, I could sell off the trees and I asked the person at the sawmill, mm -hmm. how much do you typically pay? And he's like, well, it depends on how far you are away from us. And mm -hmm. I immediately thought of a rock pit, lime quarries. That's a regionalized, localized business where 
the economics start to deteriorate the further away you are from the mill because they pay 50 or 60 bucks per ton of tree or whatever. Um, so I don't know. It's just, it's a reminder to myself how hard it is to predict these things and feel any level of certainty into the future that it's going to be the same 10 years out right. as it is today. Yeah. I'd say two things. One is I don't want to sound too negative on things like we just talked about Intel. We just talk about uh, Meta. The prices now, it's a lot safer. This is it was a lot safer when Microsoft was at ten times PE when people were worried about their situation. Um, it's a lot safer now. The danger of why we're talking about it so negatively is the you know the business results. I mean, they slowed and the competitive position. You know, let's not look at the financial results, but the competitive position. Anyone analyzing would say got worse, a lot worse. Um, but they're now at prices that fully take that into account. Whereas before, the problem is that they're in prices that assumed no deterioration. So it's kind of like saying, well, I want to buy a AAA you know, corporate bond. Well, the only way a AAA corporate bond has to go is to be rating downgrades. The only thing a stock with the you know, PE of 40 has is basically to have its multiple brought down over time because people think, well, it's it's a good good company, not a great company. And they think, oh, it's, it's an average company. And they think, oh, I, I don't know. I'm a little worried about the future, you know, and so it re-rates that way significantly. But if you pay, you know, now that fa that that meta is at you know two times sales or whatever, now it's a lot like a lot of other media things and stuff, you know. Um, now that Intel's at a little over book, uh, a single digit PE, you know, it, I mean, it's priced like industrial companies that are in uh, you know so so uh, competitive positions. So it takes care of a lot of that. The other thing is. This is, there's an element of, you know, this is Peter Lynch. This is Warren Buffett. We look at like quick FS. And I think sometimes we talk about these things too much by the numbers in terms of looking at the results of these companies. If you look at the history of the last 10 years or so of like the stocks, I believe Meta is still somewhat outperforming the S&P since it went uh, public. But, um, which is with a big uh, decline in its uh, multiple, uh, versus the S&P. Uh, and I would think that on a sort of like intrinsic value basis or whatever, I would say they've they've strongly outperformed it because really we're, we're factoring this in into a period in which um, they're basically at a discount to the S&P right now. So I think that it's kind of unfair. Yeah. So there we can see it going back about 10 years and it has, you know, you've slightly outperformed the S&P, but basically for about a year or so, you know, for the last, what, um, I don't know, let's say eight, nine years, it had been consistently ahead of the S&P. So if you bought it and you had it for any time between then and now, you've been ahead of the S&P, usually you're ahead by huge amounts. Sometimes you are, you know, whatever, this looks like three, four times your money ahead. Um, but the other thing is, um, if you compare it, if you go to compare and put in OTCM, you'll see that it's not necessary to bet on um, something like Facebook uh, that's well-known and everything as opposed to some more obscure things. So if you see here, Facebook did outperform over-the-counter markets throughout this period. But, you know, over-the-counter markets outperform the S&P throughout this period. Um, and we don't know, maybe tomorrow over-the-counter markets, you know, multiple will be cut 70, 80% or whatever would be required to bring it down to the level that Facebook's at now relative to it. If you bought it 10 years ago and held it, you'd be doing really well in both stocks. But really consistently, 
Facebook was ahead until this decline, you know, until this last year or whatever. So I, and I think that could be unfair because this could turn out that this isn't a problem for Facebook. It's multiple could be restored. You know, that happened to Microsoft. Uh, so I never want to measure it from just one point and say, oh, look at this 10 year chart. It's down. Yeah. Well, we're measuring at a horrible point for Facebook. It would be like <laughs> yeah. measuring, you know, yes. I, I love that when they do that from the bottom to today. Yes. It's up by an incredible yeah. amount. If we take 1930. Yeah. Yeah. The stock's up by a huge amount because we picked the exact bottom moment and you're probably writing your news story on the day that it's topping because you're everyone's most excited about this company. So, but my point about the comparison is like over the counter markets versus Facebook or something. Um, it's a qualitative decision with some of these things. Obviously, in every way, Facebook is a, a better business than over-the-counter markets in terms of the numbers. Its uh, returns on capital are equal to, basically, you know, they both don't really require capital. Uh, its growth was much faster. Over-the-counter markets was growing earnings by like maybe about 20% a year. Facebook was growing 40 or 50% a year. Um, Facebook was growing revenue incredibly fast, whereas this business was growing it slow, all those things. Um, but the reason why I, we, we have owned and do own, uh, over the counter markets and never own Facebook. Well, Facebook's not overlooked, but regardless is that I feel like I understood why over the counter markets had a strong position that might last into the future. And I wasn't sure about Facebook, right? So it doesn't mean I was negative on Facebook, but this is what I mean about, uh, Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett. This is the thing that doesn't show up in the numbers at all. The two companies would look equally good, right? And um, Buffett bought Apple as of such and such a date, you know, where he decided, now I understand it. He didn't buy BlackBerry. The truth is that BlackBerry in the moment where things were going great for them, it was only for a couple of years, like two years, if you looked at the numbers, but the numbers look great in the same sort of way they look great for Apple now. The question, it can't just be about the numbers. It has to be about the human behavior and you're trying to understand it and understand what's going on. And obviously he thought, you know, whatever. Um, when Apple was a pretty mature company, though several years before now, um, that he really finally understood uh, the staying power of it in a way that the first smartphone company, which is really BlackBerry, um, he wouldn't have understood it, you know? Um and it, so, so it can't just be about the numbers because there will be these businesses that have these great competitive uh, positions and that make a lot of money for a while, but some of them will continue on um, that turn out to have moats that last for a long time and some won't. Um, there's no doubt that average, I mean, I've said on the podcast before though, that, you know, these tech companies, advertisers supported media in which the content is all provided by someone else. This, these companies all basically get free content. I mean, they give like, you know, YouTube and stuff gives a cut of it to the people creating it like us. Um, but basically you put up the, the, you know, just a service in which there's just free content. So you have a newspaper effectively. And instead of having to hire people to fill that newspaper with content, you just have people volunteering to put up all the content for you and you've just produced a free newspaper. Um, and then it's advertiser supported. It's an incredible business model. You know, all these mm -hmm. online things that have advertiser support, media things that are online things are an amazing business model. And if you're the number one, the best venue for it, you will make incredible amounts of money. Um, so I don't doubt that at all. And I've never said, I would never say that, you know, Meta is not an amazing business. It's just a question of the competitive position that it's in, but the core product economics are incredible, you know. Um, but like I said, with the OTC markets things, so the product economics of that are pretty similar to like a stock exchange. They're not exactly the same, but the product economics of that are amazing.
But, you know, there was a time in our history, right, where there was like a New York stock exchange, there was a Philadelphia stock exchange, there was a stock exchange out in California, you know. Um, not mm. all of them turned out to be the dominant one that, you know, uh, that's the survivor one that we're seeing. So with any of these, if they'd had big success, you know, that we're talking about these um, services, to, they get to be the biggest one in the world. Uh, they're going to just mint money, just like, you know, Facebook did. But if BlackBerry had continued on, you know, pr presumably they would have made incredible amounts of free cash flow each year. If they could have, if you could be, you know, top in people's, um, in, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of the, um, audience, um, attention, holding on to that and everything. So the, I, I don't want to be too tough on these things with like meta and stuff because the uh, huge thing that we're seeing is just the deterioration in the multiple. And so it's very speculative that this decline in its um, market cap and everything like sticks and that it turns out to have done only so-so versus some different stocks and all of that. Um, but, you know, Visa has amazing results. Um, Verisign has amazing results. You know, like we could bring up a... 10, 20 companies, whatever, that have numbers that look to us like meta type numbers. The job of you mm -hmm. as a, as an investor is to go beyond those numbers and say like, okay, is this going to last forever? Um, it's really to figure out the difference between BlackBerry and Apple and everything. And some of the people will say, well, it's random. Okay. You know, like you could just bet on both of them. And if one of them hits it, you'll make a ton of money. And that's absolutely true. If you bet on a few of them that could do really well, the, the success from the one that does well will more than pay for the losses and the ones that don't do well. But the other possibility, and, and Buffett's been good about, really good with this, is being able to have some correct judgments about the durability of things. Because you don't have to swing at all the pitches, you know? So if you just find those that do turn out to be really durable, then that can um, work out for you really well without you having to have these really huge winners of getting in early. And he didn't get in early with Apple. But if you don't make the mistake of buying things that turned out not to to prove durable. Is that just Buffett being a genius? Or is it more so Buffett just having this exceptional ability to be patient and analyze so many different situations and pass on it until it gets in the complete no-brainer territory? Well, I don't think Buffett overestimates his uh, understanding of things as much as most investors do. So he's pretty good at sticking to his circle of competence, but he's also pretty good at like realizing, oh, I made a mistake with IBM. This turned out not to be as predictable as I thought. Um, I think he bought Oracle and then like turned around and sold it within a matter of months, but he looked like he was going to buy that up as if he understood it. Um, so he's sees things where he thinks he understands it, then goes, Oh, you know what? Actually, I, I don't understand the competitive situation here as well as I thought I did and gets out of it. You know, um, I like all the things that, um, that a lot of investors like about meta or whatever, you know, I, I want all the, you know, the, uh, the network effects. I want these businesses that don't require any capital and that grow as they do. And, and, um, have the business models of these companies that we're talking about, basically like Alphabet and, and, and Meta are the prime examples of, you know, just perfect business models that way. 
Um, but I do think, you know, the, the market's down a bunch now. And so attitudes have changed, but when I, people would talk to me and I get a lot of emails from people and stuff, it is a lot about companies like replicating this thing, um, in terms of the appeal of these ideas to value investors of the, uh, the moat that is based on winning really big of being the dominant media sort of thing, the dominant platform or whatever. Um, and there are some similarities. So like I always talk about the advertiser supported media stuff, but actually the phone stuff we were talking about does often shake out somewhat the same way. Not exactly, but somewhat. Um, so there are these big advantages to being number one. There aren't those big advantages to being number two, three, four. Um, and when we talk about other industries where I don't think that's true, generally, you know, like we talked about streaming and I've said, you know, I don't get why you want to be... I mean, it's fine to be number one, but rushing to be number one and to beat everyone else out to there, I don't think you're going to end up in a much better place. I think, you know, people are going to have all those services. Cool. Well, we can move on. And this is going to be a new uh, segment, if you will, um, that we are going to do on the podcast. And I want to constantly talk be talking about current actual ideas. So okay. what I did, Jeff, was... I pulled a screen. I'm not going to give exactly everything that was on there um, as a secret okay. sauce. Um, uh, but this is going to be a screen that uh, could show high quality companies that are undervalued. And this is the mid cap edition. So 2 billion to 10 billion. Is that so it's uh, good for our audience? Good for our audience. That's exactly why yeah, I did yeah. it. Right. I figured a okay. lot of people listening are very interested in the longer, larger companies. The right, but not too, lot, but, we won't, but not the biggest it. companies in the market. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I mean, look, I mean, you've talked about a problem you've run into. Yeah, with writing about ideas online, is yes. you're spending a lot of time focusing with our framework, and you don't want to write about a lot of companies that we could yeah. be in or interested in in the future, right? So this is the mid cap yep. edition two two billion to ten billion U.S. companies. Uh, we have our own version of. Uh, something on there that makes a little bit more overlooked. Uh, this is ranked by positive EPS. So think like okay. 42 consecutive positive uh, reports of positive e EPS. That is something that we mm -hmm. do screen for non-financial, our own version of an F score, something with to do with the Z score price of sales, less than two is what I did. And then I put a return on equity of being better than 10%, I think as an average over the past 10 years, uh, sure. ran the screen, got 192 companies, and I thought it would be mm -hmm. fun to go through them. And it, like I said, it is ranked for positive EPS. So this uh, Matson right. Inc. is number one on there. Mm -hmm. And we could take a look at it. And you know, I think it'd be interesting to kind of go through the filters that like Jim you go here, through. Yeah. Yeah, I know, right? Bye, bye, bye. But we could go through, you know, <laughs> yeah. like the overview, the durability, moat, quality, capital allocation, value. Uh, if we don't even get there, you know, we'll just move on to the next stock. And sure. Matson Inc. right here, it's a three billion dollar market cap, uh, currently trading 0.6 price of sales, two times PE. Right. I don't believe I can understand this one. I know the company is the last two sentences are the key things. It was formerly known as Alexander and Baldwin. A lot of value investors probably know that name and the connection to uh, Hawaii. The company traces roots back to the 1880s. 
Um, so, but it's in a bunch of different things that has to do with ocean transport stuff, as they explained there. It's just way outside of my understanding of that. But it 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 was related to to giant um, some of these dominant companies that kind of controlled a lot of stuff in Hawaii. There's like a handful of them that controlled a bunch of the economy and stuff there, and a few of them are still public. Mm-hmm. Maryland and Pineapple kind of is a remnant of one like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a company that you just from the start, you know, you would not be interested in. Yeah, just I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe some quant or something can buy it on, uh, but yeah, it's just way outside of what we can understand and value this business, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Next stock, UHS, Universal Health Services. Uh, I don't know if you'd be interested in a healthcare-related Acute stock. Acute care uh, hospitals, outpatient and behavioral. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is not really my, uh, yeah. I, I mean, health, yeah, healthcare stuff is, is tough for me. I mean, the actual providing care stuff, yeah. There's a lot of government policy yeah, so, things and stuff. It's just, you know, DeVita, I'm sure, is on the I'm not sure it's on the list, but I assume DeVita's on the list. But, uh, you know, about it's, it. yeah, it's probably outside of my um, understanding, too. Yeah. Uh, New Jersey Resources Company, uh, industry gas utilities, an energy services yeah. holding company, provides regulated gas distribution and retail wholesale energy services. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, current market cap, $4.3 billion, enterprise value, $6.6 billion. Valuation EV to sales 2.7, uh, but the price of sales is 1.7, which is how it snuck into the screen. Uh, 10 year median margins on EBIT 7.2%. Kager in revenue, negative uh, 3.3% going from 2.2 billion in 2012 to about 2.15 billion today. Looks pretty cyclical. You look at the gross margins, they're all over the place. You look at the operating margins. It's all over the place. Um, probably something that we wouldn't be interested in just from looking at it really quickly. What's the dividend, uh, the actual dividend level, like the, the dividend pays out each year? Can you see that? Dividend per share? Do you want like the per yeah. share number or the yeah, yeah. Uh, dollar just and the per share. cents? And what's the stock price? $45. Wow. Yeah. No, I think this is really expensive and stuff. I mean, I know this company a little bit and everything. Uh, these seem to, I was going to say the explanation might be the dividend because these things seem to trade on the dividend, but uh, no, it's just, just, it seems too expensive to me. It's very predict, very, it's actually fairly predictable. I mean, it uses a, a bunch of debt and stuff to get where it is, but it's kind of utility like that way. But yeah, it's just way too expensive. Yeah. How do you get any sort of predictability of this company? Because I look at the gross margins and operating margins, and to me, it looks pretty crazy. The variance. <laughs> Well, the return on invested capital isn't as crazy as that. Look at the chart, right? So the return on invested capital that you have there isn't that crazy. It looks to me a lot like so. This is basically it's it's basically like propane distribution stuff. I actually know some of the companies I think that are under the name. Um, it has like what half a million customers, I think it says uh, in New Jersey and some related states. So it must have acquired something because I don't know why it would have stuff in Rhode Island, for instance. But the the one the the um, Counties it mentions. I mean, I know what those counties are in New Jersey and stuff. Um, so I think it looks a lot like other uh, propane type companies to me. Uh, and even it doesn't look all that different than some than some water utilities and stuff like that. I don't like them generally. I think they're the uh, the general trade of the market too high. I mean, you have something here that has you know with leverage and stuff a history of producing about twelve percent returns on equity or worse that you're paying multiples of book value for. It generates none of it in free cash flow. You know, I don't know why I would mm-hmm. do it. I, I don't like that. Yeah, but 
But sometimes it pays a nice dividend. That's why I asked the question because a lot of times these things trade off the dividend, but obviously that's not the case here. Mm -hmm. Let's just keep going till we get one. Williams-Sonoma, oh boy. <laughs> this one, probably not one that you'd be interested in. Yeah, Specialty not retail? Not is retailer, it furniture? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it furniture? Big company. Yeah, it offers cooking, dining, uh, no, it's, products. No, it's not really furniture. What it is is um, home uh, goods that are particularly like high-end kitchen, cutlery, things like that, much more so, yeah. Yeah, um, it's really not uh, it's because it has Pottery Barn, I guess, is why it's saying the stuff about furniture and all that. Oh, and West yeah. Elm. So eight point three billion dollar market cap, uh, trading EBIT sales of one, EBIT free cash flow eight times, ten year median margins on EBIT ten percent. So right in that you know area of what we'd be interested in. Um, uh, return on equity strong, twenty five percent. Ten year Kager and revenue uh, good. Yeah, everything looks you know pretty decent. From yeah, like and a has a good perspective. And as a real online business and all of that, uh, I just can't evaluate something like this. But like it's like when we said I wrote up like American Eagle, what was it, you know, 15 years ago or, or more. Um, same thing, you know, I just, that's not, I shouldn't be writing about these things. And, you know, uh, when it works, it's good business, you know. I mean, look, the return on equity is like 25% and, and the P and everything. Um, uh, Best Buy, it worked out well, right? Like eventually they recovered and everything. Um, and Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, probably go to zero right so yeah. that's the problem with these things um you know i i don't know like that's the problem um have slight but opinions that's okay. about it yeah and i mean i don't it's not like i don't know anything i've i've shopped at williams sonoma i actually knew a couple people who worked in their stores and everything and uh, you know i know some people like it and have some ideas of what's in the store uh, and people's attitudes about it, but uh, retail is just way outside of what I understand. Specialty retail like this, this is totally different than you know um, supermarkets and things like that that we talk about. Okay. Um, uh, Robert Half International. What is that? Yeah, RHI. That is um, something like to do with it's staffing. Let me yeah. see. Okay. Yeah, yep. you're right. Mm -hmm. Provide staffing and risk consulting services in North America, South America. Europe, Asia, and Australia. Temporary consultant staffing, permanent placement staffing, and risk consulting, and internal audit services. Uh, market cap, $8.2 billion. EV, $7.7 .7 billion. Uh, staffing companies, you get a recession, and they get smoked. Uh, EV to sales, 1.1. 10-year median margins, 10%. Uh, kind of surprised. Mm -hmm. I feel like most staffing companies have higher margins typically uh but gross margins i mean cost plus right good stable gross margins mm -hmm. um thoughts on i mean you'd probably never invest in a staffing company right a recruiting company yeah i think they're hard to understand you look they're pretty good businesses because they don't really have assets and then you have this cyclicality to it you buy them at the right time it works out amazingly uh what you'll see on the chart is the issue with this is that in goodish times or even just slightly expanding economy you have returns on capital in the 20 30 percent range uh in the last two recessions uh let's not count covid it goes to zero basically um mm -hmm. Yeah. But so then it's a question of what's the balance sheet look like and all of that. Um, sometimes these things actually have no, we could look at the balance sheet just to answer this question, but they often have like no, um, like their Z scores would be poor. So let's see. So what's the total assets, uh, total liabilities? I'm sorry. Total liabilities, one point right. five, seven, one billion. Okay. So normally without cash on hand, it would be pretty close to total current assets and liabilities are about the same. The issue is really just like the um, the the 
flow of the cash in a so let's go to the cash flow statement to see this um the flow oh we don't really have a recession in like a normal recession in the last 10 years so it's actually kind of hard to evaluate this but something like the change in working capital might be significant so it kind of could be like an ad agency that way where we're seeing significantly good free cash flow numbers generally over time and then we have some times where it is more difficult but see so here you can see and this was what i was curious about i think the credit situation here is pretty strong because you think about it, they have that excess cash their liability seems pretty reasonable to me they generate some operating cash flow even in bad times so i agree they've been buying back stock you know forever um mm -hmm. i agree with you it's super cyclical and the results will go ever i mean look they earned two million dollars in 2002 and they owned uh, 141 million in 2004 yeah. <laughs> then they own th they earned 37 million in 2009 um so <laughs> it's incredibly cyclical but yeah. it will survive and that's what i was kind of looking into i mean this company's been around since just after world war ii and uh, you know people are probably familiar with the name um so yeah it's it's not something that's probably going to go to zero so i would watch that and really worry about like will it survive um probably you want to buy it in a bad part of the cycle for it but under the understanding that it might survive and and um uh, that it's actually a business that's pretty easy that way. And that's why I was kind of comparing it to like ad agencies and stuff. The earnings, I mean, this is much worse than what happens to an ad agency, but the earnings are super cyclical and be destroyed in a downturn, but it's unlikely to actually wipe out the company. Whereas like when we talk about energy companies and stuff, they take in all this debt and they get wiped out or these retailers take in all these leases, they get wiped out. This is a much more survivable business over time, but it's sort of more like when we talk about title insurance or something, you know, like that, that's related to, things in like housing activity it's like you know you earn a lot one period and then you're nothing the next period but that doesn't mean that you're a risky business where it might go to zero or something and not recover it does mean your earnings kind of disappear in a downturn but mm -hmm. your business I mean, if you survives. look at their market cap you know in 2002 is 2.7 billion and then it's uh whatever i said it is right now 8.2 so it's still probably if not being the s p kept up with it yeah, the interesting thing, of course, is that it doesn't look like cheap for something that it could be headed for a recession. But of course, no one's expecting mm -hmm. like bad results in terms of employment, really, I guess. Why I'm saying that is like EV to sales is like 1.1, EBIT is like 10. So when you think about that, you know, you divide that. So 10.1% divided by 1.1, you know, you factor in that you pay a little bit in taxes. It's pretty much what you're seeing with the PE, you know, like mm -hmm. it's pretty yeah, much a times. PE that's, yeah. Um, yeah i it, it's okay but we were just talking about meta and stuff which has probably a similar pe and you know all that i i i don't know this is a more limited possibility i mean it's it's only grown five six percent a year um in a period where there was growth all that time so it doesn't look terrible to me but it it doesn't look exciting to me either you know it's just not an industry that i would normally be buying in and the price looks okay, it's not deep value, it's not expensive at all, but it looks kind of like I'd expect the price to look. You'd yeah. probably never invest in a company that's in this industry, though. Uh, I wouldn't understand them and stuff, but like, would I personally do it at the bottom of a cycle if they were cheap? Yeah, but not one yeah, that's so $8 billion. Well, $8 billion, people won't get scared that it's like going out of business and stuff, but no, like a micro cap in this kind of thing, People will completely abandon it in a downturn sometimes. So yeah, now I I could be more adventurous than you think with some of these things. If if they survive, 
I'm willing to bet on really cyclical things if they're like, that's why I took you to the balance sheet and the cash flow statement things. If I'm really confident in their credit situation. A lot of times we talk Mm -hmm. about things and I'm kind of like, oh, this is risky and stuff. I don't think people realize, like when I said Tesla almost went out of business like 2017 or whatever, you can actually see that in like looking at their balance sheet, their cash flow statement stuff, how I'm not just saying, oh, it was kind of a rough period for them or something. I, I mean, people can just look at the accounting and understand that. So yeah, 2017 is a good example. So they had no history of generating cash flow from operations. This is Tesla. Um, they were spending heavily on CapEx. Understandably, they needed to ramp up and everything. That's the whole idea of the business and what had to happen. So they had basically having to make those spending. So they've ramped up to spending even more on PP&E than ever before. Um, and if you look at the balance sheet, and this is where the concern comes in. So like, okay, we look at tech companies sometimes that je- that lose, you know, in that case, what we just saw is that their cash flow from operations was negative 60 million and they spent four billion on PP&E that year. And they had never really generated cash flow from operations as positive once sort of. Um, but if you look, the difference is what happened with Tesla is like, if we take that year, let's say end of 2017 or 2016, total current assets were around 6 billion. Um, what were total liabilities? 23 billion. Right. Well, okay. And then um, if we look at total assets, it's all PP&E, which is not very safe from a perspective of um, uh, financing stuff. So if we look at a different, I'll show you one. This is a good one to do because this one's controversial. Let's let's go for a really uh, controversial one. W-I-R-E. Okay. I'm going to sound like okay. I'm saying something positive about a company that's earnings are going to fall off a cliff, but this is, you want to see more cyclical than Robert half. This thing is the most cyclical thing you're ever going to see. This is like up there with, um, what was the one we talked about? Uh, a Mark precious metals, right? This is that uh-huh. kind of like insane level, right? So we're Jeez, looking at a stock here that has a P of three or three to four EV to EBITDA of two, right? I saw an, a short write up of this on value investors club. So that's why I'm pointing this out because there's, I don't want to, single out any one thing for having things on it that I think are, are not right or whatever, but that post you could short it and it could do really badly. And I'm not necessarily again shorting the stock. What was said in that short post though, some of it doesn't make sense. And so we can look at, to explain what I mean. So market cap, 2.5 billion EV, 1.9 billion. This is in McKinney, Texas. It has one plant there. I've been there to the plant and oh, yeah. um, yeah. And it, it basically, takes wire and then it is just a middleman in the sense that it's buying a bunch of wire and then it's turning it over. So it's basically going to be um, giving you from one source to all the places that you're going to need around the country. So fast delivery times and things like that. So balance sheet. What's important here is like they, the short thing said, oh, um, there's going to be big write-offs of your inventory, right? And things like that. Okay. So can we look at quarterly? Yeah. 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 So this is why you want to look at the balance sheet and these things to get a real understanding of this. This company, it does not matter because of how fast they turn their inventory, right? So inventory is 136 million. That's that's at um, cost or market, right? That's a tiny amount versus something like PP&E. We're talking about Tesla. When you have a um, strong position in terms of like accounts receivable and cash and equivalents, you have a strong credit position. And so you're not going to go out of business. So if we look here at total liabilities, right? What does it say total liabilities were at the end of uh, September, 2022? 198 million. Okay. What are total current assets? 
1 billion 295 yeah mm -hmm. okay so if your uh current assets are many many times your liabilities you're not going out of business um mm -hmm. if your quick assets which are even better these are receivables and cash and equivalents right are yeah. uh, look like that you're not going in business also your cash flow is not going to go negative and this is the problem i have with the short thing that i saw right so like was earnings with yes. the person saying that they're going to go out of business no not they're going to go out of business but that their cash flow could be bad their cash flow can't be bad and i'll explain why so if you look at accounts receivable right let's understand what are accounts receivable accounts receivable are um sales that are now appearing as uh so you it's earned um, but it is not yet turned into cash. So it's a sh it's appearing as a balance sheet item. And here's the key thing. When we calculate the enterprise value, it does not count accounts receivable as part of the enterprise value, understandably. It, account it includes only cash and equivalents. But here's the issue. This company had, before COVID, uh, about $200 million in accounts receivable. Then it went up to about 600 million. It's a little bit less than that now, but let's say it's running about 350, 400 million, something like that more in accounts receivable. These accounts receivable are probably 90 days or less or something, you know, on average, I don't think they're modifying mm -hmm. them and it's going out. So this is stuff that turns to cash in three months, basically, if um, you don't. And, that, and of course that's like from the time that it gets put on the book. So of course half this stuff or whatever would probably be shorter than that. So, I mean, this would turn to cash faster than what I'm saying, but let's say it's 90 days and it's, it's faster than that. So, this all turns to cash. Like if you don't sell anything, if Encore Wire doesn't sell anything from now on, that $565 million will be collected from the customers. Mm -hmm. They will pay them and they will pay them in cash. And that's important because we just said the market cap's what, two and a half billion or something. And mm -hmm. there's 500 million in cash and equivalents. And there's another 500 million accounts receivable. If sales go back to where they were before, cash gets unlocked to the amount of 350 million because that actually gets converted in your cash flow statement because that right now is tied up in receivables right and i, I just want to stress this because i mentioned like I, I don't like to pick on a particular company but the one i always give an example is like ieh corporation which is a little tiny micro cap but it was a company that people would say oh look at the earnings and whatever and i said that's absolutely true and everything, but there's no free cash flow. It had earnings that it managed to have like zero free cash flow for 10 years while having strong earnings uh, and grew earnings like 10% a year, but grew free cash flow. It, but it had no free cash flow each year. It all went into inventory. So what's important with these things that we look at here like this is um, the cash flow generation that it has and understanding what that means as a business and what's tied up in. So, when you're paying one and a half times book for Encore Wire right now, let's think about what does that book consist of, right? Mm -hmm. A good deal of that book, right? We just, so you pay two and a half billion. We just said a billion of it is cash and accounts receivable, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and so you have other items which are basically inventory and PPE. and Inventory, of course, can be marked down because copper prices can be plunging and, and, you know, but let's say inventory is marked down a hundred percent. That is copper is now worthless. Um, it's put on the books. Usually it would be at the lower of cost or market. So it could be that they have to adjust it down to call to, um, uh, market that like they bought it at, you know, $3 a pound and then it goes down to one, then they have to mark it down. Okay. But even if you mark down 130 million, that's not very significant relative to the value of the company. Right? So the important thing is like the credit situation is terrific. Right. So, um, 
like I said, you're not going out of business. You can look at the cash flow statement, for instance. We, we can do that. But just from a, um, like when we talk about Z-score and all that, if you have really high current assets versus total liabilities, you're, you're just not going to have a problem, especially if you have a, a history of producing some um, cash flow. And this has a history of producing cash flow from operations every single year. And they have no debt. So, mm-hmm, yeah. So I, look, it's super cyclical. They could sudden, they, like, like their earnings are going to collapse, uh, presumably. Um, you can see that here. Their their earnings went up. Um, in this case, what is that? Uh, seven times, a little bit more than that. But it's like you know, it's it's still, uh, and that was off of record earnings then before. Probably over the average is like ten times up. It's because it's like basically like a spread business. I don't want to get into exactly what the company does, but what it's doing is basically just making money on the spread on wire. It's almost like a refining type business that way. So it's a fluke thing that happened because of um, this year. Just like we saw some steel companies that had fluke things that happened that way uh, with, with um, the surge in um, copper stuff that had to do with uh, copper prices in um, COVID. But Anyway, it's just not like um, a risk to go out of business and everything. So what I meant when I said like Robert Half or whatever, you know, there are some super cyclical businesses that I would look at and sure, you know, would I buy them personally or whatever? Maybe I am not against buying a totally cyclical business if you get a really great price on it, if it's very safe from a financial perspective. And what I mean by that is something like Encore Wire. This thing is not going out of business. Um the, the the most important thing about not going out of business generally is you produce cash flow from operations, especially free cash flow is great, but certainly cash flow from operations all the time. That's always a big help. So constant mm. inflow of cash is what you want. And you especially want a very small amount of liabilities, like really small liabilities relative to the size of your business. And then having current assets and quick assets. So having you know current assets which are shown for you and quick assets I'm saying are cash and receivables, um, having all that stuff uh, be really high is also what means that you're um, a very safe business from a credit perspective. And with a stock, of course, when you have a cyclical or whatever, you might have really big upside which you like, but you want to make sure that your downside is protected, almost like would I loan this company money or something. So you want to find mm -hmm. a cyclical that you think, okay, this looks attractive in terms of safety here uh, from a credit perspective. And then if it recovers, then I'd make a lot of money. The problem here, which we can see if we go to the overview, we'll just look at like the price and stuff. Um, can we do annual? Yeah. Uh, okay. So what was it making? Like maybe around three bucks or something before COVID, like on average? I mean, it was a little bumpy, but what would you say per share? Uh, yeah, basically about that three to three and a half on average, but uh, three ish. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you go back before it was less than that, but 2017, $3 and 21 cents, 2018, $3 and 74 cents, and then 2019, $2 and 77 cents. So use three fifty maybe or three ish. Yeah, sure. Three. <laughs> okay. So I don't want to pay like 40 to 45 times earnings of which mm -hmm. is what you're doing here. You're paying three to four times recent earnings, but you're paying you know, 40 times what earnings were before COVID. Don't like doing that. Of course, you get the cash and you get the receivables turning into cash if things crater. Um, but the, I just wanted to stress this as an example 
of like something super cyclical, are you just betting on the cycle that way? Uh, I would not be betting on the cycle. I'd be scared about that here. Yeah. But you mm -hmm. want to find something that you think is very safe. And then if you had an opinion about the cycle where you thought it was going to recover. So if this was the opposite situation where we're not at the best moment in the cycle for it, but we're at the worst, then I'm interested. I mean, imagine that tomorrow, you know, copper tanks nothing. This company's reporting no earnings. It's reporting losses or something. But yet it still has a bunch of cash and no liabilities. And so then you're really interested if this was down the way Meta's down, you know, 70 or 80% or something. If that was the stock chart we we're looking at, then I'd be interested because it has potential to recover, you know, just cyclically, it'll have good years and bad years, but then it has a strong um, uh, financial position, which is what you really want with a cyclical. You know, it has to survive. That's one of the most important things. And again, mentioning like Peter Lynch, I'd say Peter Lynch wrote a little bit about cyclicals and stuff. Look at what he wrote because he gives a good example. Uh, good, good commentary of that kind of thing of like, you got to make sure it survives and you know, that it's not a crazy price that you're paying versus what it could be in the future. And then you got to look for signs that it's getting to better things. This is the wrong time because there's something that's up a lot, had really good earnings and stuff. Usually it's at the opposite time. It's not when it has really low PE, you want to buy it. You usually don't want to buy a cyclical when it's three or four times PE. You want to buy it when it's some incredibly high PE because earnings go to nothing like we saw with Robert Half in a recession, right? Interesting. Cool. Well, we are coming up on two hours, Jeff, I think what I'm going to do, because I think it would be great, is every single podcast we do, I'm going to run some sort of screen. And even if we don't dedicate like an hour to it, we'll just pull it up at like the last 20 minutes and just start going through different companies. Because I always want to be talking about like real stocks and actual stocks. And even if we come across stocks like today, where um, you know, you may not be interested in, you know, 70 or 80% of them. I, I still think it's good to like anyone. go through. Okay. So yeah. 100% of them. I still think it's good to, <laughs> to go through it. So, uh, I think that would be great if we start doing every single podcast, I'm making a public declaration, every single podcast from here on out, I'm going to have a screener and no matter what, even if we're talking about a topic, we're going to go through said screener and just kind of flip through a bunch of different uh, stocks and you know they may not be micro caps or small caps i'm just going to do whatever comes to you know my mind when i run the screen and maybe mega caps maybe large caps maybe small caps maybe whatever maybe i'll pull it from magical formula whatever um it just has to sort of screen cheap and then we could go in and actually analyze it so i think that would be great but jeff i want to give you an a plus for your performance today sir um you are on fire as usual and if this is the first time you are listening to Jeff and myself, his name is Jeff Gannon. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Uh, we are the co-founders of FocusCompounding.com. You go to our website to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff uh, going all the way back to 2005. If you want to follow all the content that we put out into the world, the best place to do that is at Twitter, which is my Twitter, at FocusedCompound. We have a YouTube. We have podcasts. Uh, wherever you are listening or watching, hit the subscribe button. Uh, if you're interested in getting a document called the Gannon Compilation, I should put it up like in link form on our website of everything Jeff has ever written about investing in one centralized place uh, for you to control F through certain topics in your head. Uh, go to my Twitter and scroll down and you'll see that I tweeted it out, but I'm going to put it um in link form on the invest with us tab. Really the reason I created it was for prospective investors that reach out. Um, sometimes I have conversations and they ask like questions about investing or Jeff's thoughts towards certain topics. And I'm like, I don't know if there's another investor on the internet. I swear when I'm saying this, I don't know if there's another investor on the internet that has more information about how they think about investing uh, 
than focus compounding does going all the way back to 2005 (laughs) between the podcast (laughs) no way between the podcast all of your writing i don't even know if buffett who's been followed you know forever i really don't even know no there's not uh, as much on it does record no of course and not, especially because... like nitty-gritty like of like actually talking about these companies and stuff like that he doesn't talk about companies that he owns at the time he doesn't talk about you know uh bad about companies he wouldn't come out and say oh i wouldn't own these companies because xyz <laughs> just like you just did today so there's literally <laughs> no other investor on the internet that has more information than we do so sometimes people would ask me questions i'm like i'm just going to create a document that outlines everything and here, you know, please, like if I were to invest in an investor, I would love this document because you could decide for yourself if it makes sense for you. So uh, long winded way of saying go to focuscompound.com. I'm going to put the Gannon compilation on the invest with us tab. Uh, if you want to get it, um, you know, right now or a different way, just go to my Twitter, scroll down. You'll see that I tweeted it out. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff Gannon and Andrew Kuhn. We still are the number one value investing podcast in the world, undisputed, coming on five years, which is crazy. Uh, Thank you so much if you've been with us for the ride. I'm going to pull a screener for every podcast going forward. So hold me to it. And we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.